John's Gospel that we're up to. Uh, Claire's going to come up in a second and read it. What does Jesus' action in these verses reveal about him? And there's, there's, I reckon, at least about five quite big answers. See how many you can spot. Maybe you can spot more. What does Jesus' action in these verses reveal about him? Let's have the reading. So today's reading is uh, John chapter 13, and it's verses 1 till, yeah, till 70. Great. And it's on page uh, 900 in your Bibles. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Sorry, we're now at verse 2. I've realized that I didn't give a pause for people to find it, but we're now at verse 2. Um, <laughs> if you're still looking for it. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my head, sorry, my hand and my head. Um, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew um, who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Loving Father, please, with the words coming out of my mouth in the next few minutes and the thoughts that you are looking at and that you see and uh, no, in all of our hearts in the next few minutes, be honoring to you and pleasing to you. Would they give you pleasure? And Lord, we, we ask this of you because you are our rock, our source of strength, and the, the only truly trustworthy thing in this whole universe. And also because you are our redeemer. You, you're the, the only chance we have of freedom, true freedom. And you give it to us out of your love for us. So we come to you and ask you 
for these two things now, Lord, the words out of my mouth and the thoughts in all of our hearts to be honoring to you. Amen. So with Valentine's Day not too long ago, a couple of weeks, um, I was recently browsing the internet just out of interest to see the world's wisdom on this subject of love that we're all obsessed by. And uh, it won't surprise you to know I came up with some crackers. It's going to inflict one or two of them upon you. For example, um, how do you get a farmer's daughter to fall in love with you? A tractor. Hey, you're welcome. Um, but love involves honesty, doesn't it? And that doesn't always go so well. For example, I saw someone else had written, I told my girlfriend she was drawing her eyebrows too high. She looked surprised. <laughs> and yet, knowing whether or not someone loves you and how much they love you or, or don't, you know, wondering that is a deadly serious question, isn't it? Human happiness depends on that question. As humans, we have this hardwired need built into us for someone outside of ourselves to love us. And, and when we think we, someone is in that position and then we start to doubt whether or not they're actually in that position, that's what shakes us to the core. And so I wonder if anyone here has ever been in that, uh, even slightly been in that really disturbing, unsettling position where you've, you've suddenly started to doubt the love of your friend or your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, even your husband, your wife your parents, your children. And, you know, we're on very sensitive ground now and, and no one's going to put their hands up, but of course we have. We've all been there. Well, today we enter a new section in John's Gospel and it starts at a look at the true nature of the greatest love the world has ever seen, the love of our Savior and Master, the Lord Jesus. And the fact we're entering a whole new, brand new major section in John's gospel is signaled for us loud and clear by John. Start of chapter 13, John tells us we're finally at the Passover. And verse 2, it turns out they've even started eating the meal. Now, we've had days of anticipation for this. John's been giving us a countdown very deliberately. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1, he wrote six days before the Passover. Chapter 12, verse 12, he writes the next day, dot, dot, dot. So now it's down to five days before. And now we finally have liftoff. Now we're at the third and final climactic Passover of John's ministry, of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. Got one at the beginning, one in the middle, and here's the biggie, the one at the end. Now we finally get to the epicenter of his ministry on earth where he's going to die as the perfect, ultimate Passover lamb, sacrificing himself for our sins. But there's also a second signal in verse 1 that we've arrived at this huge moment in John. So let me read verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that, what? Someone tell me. His hour had come. Thank you, Ian. Well done. John's gospel, Jesus' hour refers to his death, his very mission for which he came to earth. And all the way through John's gospel so far, you've probably noticed, my hour has not yet come, chapter 2, verse 4. His hour had not yet come, chapter 7, verse 30. His hour had not yet come, chapter 8, verse 20. And a couple of other times, and as he gets closer and closer to his hour, the wording of that phrase starts to change. Finally, chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So we know now we're on the brink of this huge climax that's been building and building and building for 13 chapters, this, this, this coming section now. And in the rest of verse 1, John then gives us the headline for today's little passage in particular, 
verses 1 to 17, the headline being in the rest of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So there's a little orientation, just some architecture of John's gospel. We'll dive in um, to the meat of the passage right now, but I, I hope that helps us know where we are in John and, and what John is deliberately doing. And, and what unfolds next is a shocking, totally unexpected, massive breach of some of the most sensitive social norms in their culture. One of these stories that maybe if you heard it as a, as a kid, you've, you've known it for decades, you heard it in Sunday school, it, it, it doesn't shock us anymore. It needs to, it really needs to. I'm going to do my best to shock us with how shocking what we're about to read is. So let me read from verse 4. We'll come back to verses 2 and 3 later. Verse 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now in that culture, people's feet were dirty to say the least. Uh, I mean, think about it. Open sandals, extreme heat. You go everywhere on foot, lots of dust. Uh, people's old sort of sewage washing water, at least, you know, gets thrown out into the streets. There's animal dung in the streets. Um, not a good combo for your feet, especially if you are going to a very important formal meal with your very closest friends. Almost a bit like Christmas lunch in our culture. And on such occasions, a servant, or more like a slave, would be on call to give that all-important foot wash for the guests the moment they arrived. But so gross was that job, and so menial was that job, it would not only be done by a slave, it would be done only by a non-Jewish slave. This was a job reserved for the lowest of the lowest of the low. Well, on this occasion, it turns out that who'd ever been in charge of uh, booking the, the, the foot washer, maybe it was Peter, had forgotten. Or maybe the foot washer had been double booked that night because of the high demand for foot washers all over the city for all of these Passover meals. Whatever the case, I can just imagine the whispered conversation between the disciples before Jesus walks into the room for dinner. I'm not going to do it. You do it. No, I'm not going to do it. You do it. Well, why doesn't he do it? Well, I'm not doing it. You do it. And surprise, surprise, you'll be shocked to know, turns out none of the disciples were, willing, were, were, were so um, unimportant as to be appropriate to do that foot washing themselves. They, they were all too important and impressive. And after all, they weren't just anybody. They were Jesus' disciples, and they knew it. And so when Jesus sees that nobody's going to do it, and the supper has started, he quietly gets up and just starts to do it himself. And as he started, they would have, they would have like, the conversation would have stopped. They would have started glancing at each other in silent shock and bewilderment and probably quite a lot of embarrassment as well. This is toe-curlingly awkward. Uh, think of the, the, the atmosphere that would suddenly de de descend around the table as all the talking stops and they look at each other in, in embarrassment as the, the eternal second member of the Trinity is in his underwear, on his knees, scrubbing between their toes, maybe scraping out a bit of animal poo from underneath one of their toenails. And he's going down the line. They're all looking at each other. What is happening? This is so cringing. And he gets to Peter in verse 6. And, and good old Peter, so predictable, he cannot contain himself any longer. 
And I sympathize a bit with Peter. What happened here was utterly shocking. I, I don't think I would have been able to contain myself. And I was just trying to think of some kind of parallel in terms of the formality and the preciousness of the occasion, but also the unexpectedness and awkwardness and embarrassment. And I was thinking, just imagine if one Sunday in church, the, the preacher just... I did, I did warn James about this. <laughs> I hope... <laughs> and it would have been that times a million. Because I'm not the eternal second person of the Trinity. And secondly, it wasn't just a Sunday meeting, middle of a message. This was an annual sacred high point in the entire Jewish year, as, as important as it gets. This is like Christmas lunch on steroids. This is the Passover meal when that happens, times a million. Hashtag awkward, right? And Jesus' extraordinary act in doing that reveals a number of things about him. Thanks a lot, James. You're very game. I did warn James. He's got to go through it again at the 11.30. Going to have a very clean left foot by lunchtime. But I'm just going to pull out briefly now five things that that act reveals about Jesus. And here's the first. His love. The first and the main. I'll spend most of my time on this and we'll whiz through the others more quickly. But we see in this act the humble amazing, self-sacrificial, practical love of Jesus Christ for his people. Uh, look at verse 1 again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that phrase, to the end, is very significant. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. It probably doesn't mean what we probably think it means. And by the way... Uh, um, I'll just talk about it now. The Greek there doesn't mean to the end in terms of time, like he's about to die. He is about to die, but that's not what's meant. The Greek there, to the end, means to the end in terms of extent, in terms of how much anyone could ever love anyone. What it's saying is he loved them to the max. He loved them to the limit. And... Ultimately, he loved them to the max, to the limit, when he died for his people on the cross. You can't love someone more than give your life for them. And in fact, Jesus gave more than that. He gave his soul, not just his earthly, physical human life, but his soul for them, as it were. Because on the cross, he experienced all the eternities in hell that all of his future people down the centuries would ever have faced for their own sin. That was love to the end, to the max. That's how John describes the love behind his foot washing here. So this foot washing is a foretaste, like a symbol of the cross. And both of those events, that the foot washing and then what it was the foot washing was pointing to, the cross, scream at us this radical, stunning love that Jesus has for us. Now, there may be circumstances in your life right now that make you, to be frank, 
doubt that. If he really does love me, why would he have let that person do that thing to me? Why would my life be like this if he really did love me? How come I'm feeling like this? Why did I have to go through that if he loves me? Now, I recently read about a Christian who is suffering very greatly who said this, I feel like I'm inside a machine that's grinding me to bits and God is standing there next to it, feeding in 50 peas to keep it going. So then it's a question of whether I believe my feelings or I believe the evidence of the cross. Now, for the Christians among us, we know that God loves us, but each of us will know that to a different extent. And the more spiritually mature among us will know that to a deeper extent, and the less spiritually mature among us will we'll still know that God loves us, but we won't know it as deeply. It won't have taken such deep root in our hearts. And the extent to which I know I'm loved, whatever that extent is, has a direct correlation to loads of things in my life. Here are just three of them. For example, knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to prove. Knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to fear. Knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to hide. So first, knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to prove. In the sense that the pressure's off. I've already been accepted by God. I don't have to become an exhausted, bitter, slightly joyless legalist, doing loads of stuff to impress God or try to earn his favor, yo-yoing between pride when I'm doing well and depression or anxiety when I'm doing badly. I already have his favor and acceptance. I can relax. Nothing to prove. He loves me. A second, knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to fear. Because he's the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the God who's sovereign over every last proton and electron and neutron in this universe. If he loves me, I'm sorted for life. In fact, I'm sorted for eternity. doesn't mean I won't fear things. Of course I will, but it just means when I do, it's my bad. I don't need to. It also doesn't mean that bad, painful things won't happen to me. Of course they will. It just means that when they do, I can trust that they're part of some greater plan of his that's maybe way over my knowledge horizon because I'm such a small, finite little human creature with a mind that is affected by the fall and sin. And I I know less than 1% of everything God knows. But I can trust him when painful things happen to me because I know he loves me. And third, knowing I'm loved means I have nothing to hide in the sense that I don't have to be insecure. If I start to understand at a really deep, deep level how much God loves me, I will start to get to the point where I can genuinely say, who cares if my body shape isn't what I want it to be or as impressive as others? Who cares if I'm not as good looking as that person or as wealthy as that person or as clever as that person or as popular as that person? I genuinely don't care. I'm liberated because God loves me. That's enough. Be able to be myself. I won't have to spend my life carefully, desperately trying to cultivate an image, invest loads of time and energy, because it's very tiring putting up a fake front to others to impress them. I, I won't have to pour myself into frantically covering my failures and hiding my imperfections and trying desperately to look more impressive than I really am. I'll be able to be secure, just be myself, because God loves me, nothing to hide. Uh, God's love is better than life itself, says David in Psalm 63, as shown by the fact that it means I have nothing to prove, nothing to fear, nothing to hide. But as well as revealing his love, Jesus' foot washing, which foreshadows his death on the cross, also reveals, and like I said, we'll cover these next four more quickly, his cleansing. Uh, Let's pick it up again from verse 8. 
So Peter cannot contain himself any longer. Lord, you never washed my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Because the truth is Jesus' death washes us clean, gives perfect everlasting spiritual cleansing as symbolized by the foot washing. And it washes us perfectly and forever clean of all of our sin, no matter how serious. Might be some big skeletons in the, in the, in the cupboard in this room. No matter how serious, no matter how big a mistake you've ever made, no matter how frequent or great or how much, or, and, and washes us clean of all of our sin, past, present, and even future. You're already washed clean of the horrific, awful thing you will find yourself doing seven and a half years from now. You're, right now, you're washed clean of it. Or, or that, that sin that you cannot shake off. You're totally entangled. You're going to slip up and fall into it again. Tomorrow morning, you're already washed clean. And that cleansing isn't a nice to have. Not just like a spiritual spa, sort of, you know, spiritual facial. Life wouldn't really be that different if you hadn't had it. Because without it, we won't be allowed into heaven. That's why Jesus says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share in me. So then, Peter, being Peter, swings totally the other way. In that case, Lord, don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head which gives Jesus a chance to teach something else about this cleansing that comes by his death. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And what's Jesus saying there? What he's saying is, look, Peter, you don't need a bath. Just relax. You are already cleansed. You've trusted in me. You're saved. Chill. But notice, that's not all he says. He says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash you're saved, Peter. You've been washed. You trust me. Relax. Except for his feet. But is completely clean. The point being, if we've trusted in the cross, we are completely cleansed. But we've got to be going back to Jesus to have that cleansing almost topped up, as it were. We've got to have constant ongoing repentance for sin. We've had the bath. But if so, we should therefore care about regularly washing our feet. If cleanliness being purified from our sin matters to us such that we've had a bath, we should then naturally be wanting to wash our feet regularly. Being clean matters to us, right, as Christians, spiritually. Being, being forgiven for our sin matters. As Martin Luther famously put as number one out of the 95 theses, like uh, complaints almost, he nailed on the Wittenberg church door to kick off the Reformation in 1517, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended the whole of the Christian life to be one of constant repentance. So, you know, great I've trusted in the cross. Great I'm cleansed forever for all of my sin. Uh, great I've had a bath. Am I truly repentant for my sin today? Am I going to be truly repentant of my sin tomorrow? Um, it feels kind of weird preaching in my underwear. So I'm going to put my shirt back on. Just for the tape, I'm not literally in my underwear. I'm not in my pants. I'm, I'm mostly clothed, if you're listening online. I'm just going to put my shirt back on. Um, and recently one of my boys has started uh, getting really into morning baths. Kind of weird. Makes me sort of think of Winston Churchill, who used to love to do that for hours every morning, apparently. Um, kind of funny. Works for him. And I guess it, it sets him up for the day. You know, he's clean. He's good to go for the rest of the day. What that doesn't mean is that he doesn't then need, you know, a few little ongoing top-ups as the day goes on. Wet wipe here. You know, teeth brush there. 
So let's rejoice in the total cleansing once and for all that we have through repentance and faith in Jesus' death once for all. But let's also be, be committed to going back to him in repentance and faith regularly, keeping short accounts with him, as it were, for our sin, letting him wash our feet. Which brings us to the third thing revealed by his, Jesus' foot washing here, which is Jesus' enemy. We've seen his love, his cleansing, but now we see his enemy. We find his enemy in two places in these verses, Judah's sin and Satan's power, the human heart and the devil. Verse 2 again. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, dot, dot, dot. So listen to what one commentator says about this. Judas is part of the company sharing the meal and hence among those whose feet Jesus washes. And by the way, that says something pretty stunning about Jesus' love, doesn't it? He's washing the feet of the guy he knows is going to betray him to be tortured to death in a few, was it hours? Was it minutes? His heart, however, Judas' heart, however, even though he's in this inner, inner circle, is elsewhere. His heart has been invaded by Satan. But John does not imply Judas is a helpless pawn in the hands of the evil one. He was only prompted, not propelled. But Judas' surrender to greed for money or his, enchantment, his disenchantment over Jesus' refusal of political power, or whatever else was the root of his decision to betray his master, gave the devil an opportunity. Having closed his heart to the light, Judas found himself the servant of darkness. What does that mean for us? Well, this writer goes on. Here is the solemnest of warnings. Not all who profess to follow Jesus are truly his own. Even some who receive the outward washing of Christ are still unwashed in heart. And this is obviously applicable to things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we're having the Lord's Supper in a couple of weeks. We have it every third Sunday of the month. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. I mean, read on. Though powerful means of grace to the committed, things like the Lord's Supper and baptism cannot in themselves give salvation. Satan is ever seeking hearts which have closed themselves to the light so that, they might be, uh, so that they might be vulnerable to him. Our safety lies only in keeping close to Jesus and daily allowing the light of his word to expose and correct us. In other words, returning to him frequently to have our feet washed. Repentance and faith every day. So let's not presume on our salvation. Let's not be complacent. Let's keep watch over our hearts and, and be warned by, by scary tragedies like this one with Judas. But lest we start thinking of poor little Jesus, helplessly vulnerable, bullied and, and beaten by these powerful wicked enemies of Judas's sin and Satan's power. Here's the fourth thing revealed in these verses about Jesus. His sovereignty. Middle of verse 1. Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So his, his, his death is happening not when Judas decides, not when Satan decides, not when Pilate decides, not when the Pharisees decide, not when anyone else decides. His death happens when his father decides with his prior knowledge. His death wasn't dictated by Judas, Satan, or anyone else. Its timing was decided by his father and waited for by him. Oh, look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, dot, dot, dot. As someone put it, all things means just that. His rule is absolute. His lordship is complete. 
And if you'd been there, if you'd been one of the 12 disciples, or if you'd been that foot-washing slave who never turned up in the end, in that room, and then watched the events of the next few hours, it wouldn't have looked like the Father had put everything into Jesus' hands as you watched um, him betrayed and then jumped in the middle of the night by this big powerful force of soldiers from the Sanhedrin and then arrested and then subjected to an illegal kangaroo court in the night and then tried by Pilate and beaten to a pulp and then tortured to death, naked, humiliated, while a crowd laughed at him. Wouldn't it look like the Father had put everything into his hands? Wouldn't it have looked like he was in control? But underneath the surface, while all of that was happening, it was happening to a person into whose hands the Father had put everything. So think about it. Jesus was sovereignly sustaining the lives of the Roman soldiers so that they were able to pound the metal spikes through his wrists and through his feet. And amazing good came from everything that happened to Jesus. The greatest good the universe has ever known, the eternal salvation of millions and millions. And so in our lives, when things are looking out of control and just unmitigated disaster and chaotic, that's what it looked like for Jesus. And that is the time to remember the same reality below the surface. Jesus is in control. He is sovereign. The promise is that good will somehow come out of it. And therefore, no matter how great the storm around us, when there's a big storm, we can have peace. And so I wonder, you know, what you're going through right now. Well, Jesus is in control. He's sovereign. Which leads to the fifth and final thing shown here about Jesus, which is his example. Here's the, the challenge for us. Verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, he says to his disciples, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Do we see his logic there? Very, very powerful. His logic is that if even he, who's higher than his disciples, their Lord and teacher, is ready to wash their feet, how much more ready should they be to wash each other's feet? And, and he drives that logic home again to emphasize it in verse, 18, uh, verse 16. Sorry. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So, so he's the master, we're the servant. He's the one who sends the messengers, we're the messengers. And he's saying that since he gets down and dirty for the sake of his people, how much more should we? In other words, if I'm not humbly, sacrificially, practically serving God's people around me, what I'm effectively saying is, I'm better than Jesus. I'm greater than Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And that's the final challenge for us. Are we serving each other? And, and there are lots and lots of things this could look like. Um, could look like just the members of the audio team. You know, Pedro and Nandi sitting at the back right now and all the other guys in that team just quietly, cheerfully doing what they do from 8 o'clock or earlier every, every Sunday. Or the members of the, audio, uh, the, the visual team or, or the, the kids' teachers who we don't often see. They're quite isolated in their sacrificial service. They do it so joyfully and cheerfully. Uh, it could look like just the refreshment team doing what they're doing. Um, or any of the other teams could look like me taking a genuine interest in the welfare of the others in my growth group, not turning up thinking, what can I get out of this, not deciding not to go because I wouldn't get much out of this, but 
going and thinking when I go, what can I put into this? In other words, how can I help and serve the others there? And if you're not in a serving team or a growth group, just make use of the, the connection card in the front of your Bibles. Whack it in the black post box on the way out. A staff member would love to put you in touch with either of those two great service opportunities. All this could look like during coffee, there are the refreshment team working hard. Thanks, Graham, Lucy, Christina. Um, finding someone who's maybe looking a little lonely or, or like they're, they're not as well connected, they don't have as many friends as you in the church family, they're standing alone, not talking to anyone, going up to them and saying, is, is there anything I can do for you? How can I serve you? And then doing it, whether it's a lift somewhere later this week or some grocery shopping or some babysitting or a meal or maybe a cash gift if they're a member of the church family who we know. Or, or maybe just visiting them for coffee, taking them out for coffee later this week because they're struggling and would love someone to talk to. And by the way, we've got to get over our pride, everyone, and let others serve us. Um, so if someone asks you over coffee this morning, what I've just told us all to be asking each other, how can I serve you? You're not allowed to say, no, I'm fine. Everything's okay, thanks. Not allowed. That's not a, a, a valid, legitimate answer. Make something up if you have to. We've got to let each other serve each other. There's always something. There's always some way in which we can help each other. So let's swallow our pride and, and say, just begin your answer with, that's so kind, yes, please, thank you, and then think of something. So there we have it, his love, which the more we understand, the less we have anything to prove, anything to hide, anything to fear. His cleansing, which should give us great joy at the once for all, total, perfect, eternal purification, but also challenge us to keep repenting and having faith. Keep coming back to have our feet washed. Uh, his enemy, what a warning. Let's not close our hearts to Jesus, which can happen to anyone, even to people who seem super close to him, like Judas, who was in the inner circle. Because when we close our hearts to Jesus, what we're doing is opening them to Satan, making ourselves available to work against God's mission. Uh, fourth, his sovereignty. He is in control no matter how things look. So we can have peace no matter how big the apparent storm. And fifth, his example. After all, a servant's not greater than his master. If any of us aren't serving each other, humbly, sacrificially, practically, what we're saying is I'm greater than Jesus. And as Jesus finishes in verse 17, the final verse, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Don't know about you. I want to be blessed. I want to be really, really, really blessed. So let's get to it. We'll just have a few moments of quiet now and uh, look over the verses. We'll maybe use the next 30 seconds or so to, to look down the list and think, Holy Spirit, which one of these five are you poking me lovingly about this morning? You know, where is my conscience just sort of putting its hand up out of these examples? We'll have some quiet and then we'll close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we're sorry for when we, we just think it's nothing. It's kind of almost boring, a story we think we know so well. 
about you getting on your knees, getting in your underwear, scrubbing probably animal poo and certainly dust and sweat and grime from in between the toes of your disciples who were too important to do it themselves. Lord, that is shocking. Help us to be shocked by that and challenged by that. You left the glory of heaven and and that's how much you love us, that you're willing to serve us in that way that, that points forward and foreshadows the cross. So thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your cleansing. Thank you that by repentance and faith in your death to pay for our sin, we are perfectly, eternally, spiritually spotless, which is how we're going to be allowed into heaven. But Lord, help us not to be complacent and, and stop caring about that and therefore not coming back to you to have our feet washed regularly, having repentance and faith every single day. Lord, thank you for this illustration of uh, your enemy. What a warning that is. We, we look at Judas turning his heart from you and then Satan jumping in, seizing that opportunity. Lord, please would that never be anyone in this room right now. Thank you for this display of your sovereignty. Everything is in your hands. And if that was true during these events in the last few chapters of John, Lord, how much more can we trust that will be true in the, the relatively small um, examples of chaos and pain that, that we experience? Help us to trust that everything is in your hands, that you are sovereign, and would we have peace from that? And Lord, we want to be blessed. Please empower us by your Spirit to follow your example. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Let's worship.